We were here with us last week. We talked about uh, the first week in our series on the Beatitudes, right? And we, we titled this, You Are Here. And the reason it's titled that is because essentially the Beatitudes are a layout of God's essential course for the Christian life, right? And so that's why we've titled it the way that we've titled it. Last week, we talked about coming to the place of having a surrendered heart. This week, we're talking about what happens after we surrender. And then uh, next week, Pastor Terry is going to be back, but probably towards the end of February, early March, I'll be finishing up on our last week of this series. So I hope you guys are able to make it with us. But anyway, let's pray real fast and we'll get into this. Father, we just come before you today and we thank you so much for your word. God, that it doesn't return void. Lord, anytime we hear your word, it sinks deep into our soul. And Lord, it, it is there permanently. It's taking root, Father. And I ask that today as we, as we get ready to spend some time in your word, that before we leave here today, there would be some dramatic shift in our hearts concerning our relationship with you, concerning our relationship with each other. Father, that your word would encourage, comfort, and urge us today in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I have said this before. You'll probably hear it a thousand times. I am an absolute sucker for a road trip. Anybody else love road trips in here? Man, I am, I am like a yellow lab with my head hanging out the window when it comes to, <laughs> comes to road trips. Man, I just absolutely love them. In fact, if an if a, uh, acquaintance or a near stranger said to me, Hey, uh, Seth, I'm going to drive down to Mexico and pick up a package of undisclosed content and drop it off in L.A. on my way home. Would you like to go? At some point during that whole trip, probably about the way back, I would think to myself, this is a bad idea. (laughs) Kyle, why are we doing this? (laughs) But it would be most of the way home because I would be like, all I would hear is, want, 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 road trip. And I would be like, yes, I'm off, man. I love it. Uh, my first road trip was right after high school. My parents had just got a, uh, uh, it was like a 1994, 95 uh, Z28 Camaro uh, with a you know, big motor. It was, it was, I mean, it was pretty fast for its day. I mean, it was kind of fast for today. And not only do I have an affinity for road trips, I have an affinity for fast things, right? Well, I, I used to. I've kind of gotten over it a little bit in my old age. But, you know, what do you do? Well, uh, after high school, me and my friend, we decided, let's take a trip down to, down to California, to, just to the border. So we could say we, we've been to California, and we'll, we'll drive back, we'll camp out a few, few places along the way. And so we borrowed my mom's Camaro. We loaded it full of, like, mostly beef jerky. That was probably it. Beef jerky and Mountain Dew, I think, is probably what filled up the entire trunk. Maybe a sleeping bag and a big knife, I don't know. That's probably about it. So we, we, were, we drove down, um, what is it, I guess, uh, I-5 down south towards Portland. And somewhere when you get past Portland, there's a road that cuts across from I-5 over to 101. And it's just this windy backcountry road. And I see some head shaking because you guys know which one it is. And I probably couldn't find it again if my life depended on it. But my buddy, he knew this road because he grew up in, in Oregon. So he was telling me, man, we got to go drive on this road. So we go down there, we find this road, and, and this to me was when the trip began, right? Because now here's the twisty corners, and it's just going to be a fun drive. And Don't get me wrong, I wasn't going like, like ridiculous fast. See, there's levels of fast, right? There's get a ticket fast. There's go to jail fast. 
There's, if you get in a wreck, you'll be eating out of a tube fast. And then there's just, you die. Right? So there's like, there's like four levels there. And we were doing like somewhere between ticket and arrested fast. Right? But we weren't doing eating out of a tube fast. That, those, those days came later. And they're behind me. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. My kids hopefully will grow up with a dad. Yeah. So we got on this road, and we got like six miles into it, and, and my buddy says, we got to pull over. we got to pull over. And I was like, why? We're having fun. Pull over. I pulled over, and he spent like the next 20 minutes just in the bushes, man. Just, just uh, He had an affinity for car rides or, or for road trips. He had an affinity for fast cars. He just did not have an affinity for corners. Right? These corners were absolutely killing him. And so the rest of the trip... It was like driving Miss Daisy, man. We were just cruising along, and, and I was like, man, I need to sedate this guy, put him in the trunk, and so I can, so I can keep going fast. But th- see, the thing with road trips is you always have a destination in mind, don't you? Usually, you don't just get in the car and drive indefinitely. You know where you're, where you're heading, don't you? And every single one of us, trying not to be too cliche, but every single one of us are on a spiritual journey. We really are. And we've, we've heard that statement before, but the reality is this. Every single one of us, our hearts are in a different place. There may be some of you who came to church today for the first time because life is what it is, and, and maybe you're just exploring, is God even real? What's this whole Jesus thing all about anyway? Right? You may be here uh, on, in a different place where life's going fantastic, you're trusting Jesus through your circumstances, and you're praying with faith, and, and, you're, and you're trusting God in areas you can't even see the future of, right? You may be there. You may be somewhere in between, struggling with something and, and wondering, well, my faith and my experience in church taught me that this is how things should be, but this is what I'm experiencing over here, and I'm not seeing where the, where the area where they connect is. That might be where you're at. So all of us, our hearts are in different places concerning God, concerning religion, concerning spirituality. We're all, we're all in different places, every single one of us. And the fact is, we're really all hoping to head for the same destination, though. Do you know that? We're heading, ideally, we all want to head to the same destination. We want heaven. I've never talked to anybody that when you boil it down, says, I don't want anything to do with heaven. Right? Everybody wants heaven, and everybody wants abundant life. Everybody. There's not a single person who says, I want my life to be terrible. That would be the best for me. If life was just awful, I would love it. Right? There's nobody like that. The Grinch isn't real. He's just on TV. Right? But we all, we all want these things. We want heaven. We want e- eternal life. We want abundant life now. And the thing is, we learned last week that essentially Jesus said that there's two roads, right? There's, a, there's a, a, a wide road and there's a narrow road. And he says that there are many who are on the wide road and there are few who find the narrow road that leads, leads to life. And Jesus laid out for us essentially a course, a road map to abundant life, and a blessed eternity. And we find that in the Beatitudes. We find that in the, in the gospel. We find that in the, in the Bible. So here's the thing. Jesus essentially told us that if we're following a course different than the one he laid out for us, we were following the wrong course. Did you know that? I know some of us are like, wait a second. That's kind of an arrogant thing to say. Man, how can, can you back that up? Here's how I back it up. 
The one who said this is Jesus. He essentially told the the disciples, he told the scribes and the Pharisees on several occasions, I'm going to be put to death, but don't sweat it because you'll see me three days later. In the third day, you'll see me again. And the reason I'm telling you this is because when it happens, you'll be able to look back and see, hey, he told us that already. He told us this was going to happen. The thing I have to back this up that puts weight to this is the simple proof that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And it's not fact because I say it's fact. It's fact because scholars argued this at one point very briefly and came to the conclusion that there's no, he had to have risen from the dead. Here's the reason why. The Bible says not only did he he tell people he would do it, but he was seen by over 400 people afterwards. For the next 70 plus years, people were willing to go to the grave, murdered, tortured, over the statement that they made that Jesus rose from the dead. I saw it with my own eyes, or I know somebody who was a first-hand witness that this took place. I cannot deny this. People went to the grave. People saw their family members tortured and put to death in front of them over this statement. I promise you, they believed it was true with every dying breath. There's not a person in the world that would not recant that statement if it weren't actually absolute. Right? Scholars don't even argue whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. It's not even a dispute anymore. What we really have to come to the dispute is, well, could the Romans who were the most powerful killing force on the face of the planet at the time, did they have the ability to put to death a Jewish rabbi? That's what we have to ask ourselves. And common sense would say, yes. The the Romans certainly had within themselves the capability, the capacity to kill a person. Absolutely. Without even a question. Right? But Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we can bank on this being accurate. That's why we can, we can bank on the fact that when he told us in what we call the Beatitudes, that here's the course he set for us to follow. If we want to have abundant life, eternal life, a life worth living, this is the process. And so I want to share it with you. Last week, in fact, let's read this. Jesus laid out the course to a blessed life and a secure eternity. Let's read this in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 5. Let me back up a page here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, remember, these things that Jesus laid out for us are not individual blessings. They're not individual blessings. We read them, and it looks like that's what they are. But essentially, Jesus lays out for us the, the Christian, the Christ-centered life within the two phrases, the kingdom of heaven. We have it in the first beatitude, and we have it in the last one. right? And Jesus is filling in in the middle that our hearts are in different places, different areas in our pursuit of God. 
right? And so last week, the first one we talked about, we, we, we came to a place that when we recognize we don't have the answers, Jesus is essentially saying we're on our way to a blessed life. When we recognize that spiritually we are poor, because we live in a spiritually arrogant culture where we think we have the answers. The majority of people think that if I'm a good person or I live a certain way or I'm kind to the poor or I do these certain things, then my eternity will be secure because someday I'll stand before the man upstairs and tell him, hey, I'm not as bad as Steve over here, right? So you should just let me in because we're good because I know I made mistakes here, but I did these things over here really well. Right? That's what our hope is. But Jesus was saying to us that when we recognize that that's not the answer, that's not the course, that is the beginning of, of recognizing that now we can start down the path of a blessed life. The second thing we talked about, when we recognize the death that sin has caused in our lives, when we recognize that, that not living according to the path that God set up for us, when we break his rules, when we, when we fail to follow his commandments, that it leads us to a place of, of, of sin and destruction when we recognize that destruction in our own lives and we come to the place where, where we essentially mourn. We have an emotional response to the death that sin has caused in our own life. We come to the place called repentance. We come to a place where we say, God, forgive me for my sin. I know that I've missed your mark. Lord, would you forgive me? We come to that place, and, and, and it, it's a place of repentance. Third, finally, we come to the end of our own control, and we surrender to Jesus for his leading. Right? We surrender to Jesus for his leading. It's the place where, where we come to God and say, God, I, I can't do this. I can't be in control of this. We try to carry the weight of so much stuff we weren't designed to carry, including our eternity. We want to bear the weight in our own good deeds to try to come to the place where, where we can be right with God. And, and essentially, God says, that's, that's not for you to carry. It's for me. And when we finally go, get to the place where we surrender our lives to God and say, God, you, you take this. Right? The Bible says that that is, is, is the direction we need to be heading. Right? So last, last week we learned about when we come to that place of... of of acknowledging our sin before God, we usher in his comfort, right? Not only his comfort, but he, just like Isaiah, uh, I can't remember where it's at now, I think it's Isaiah 51, it, it says that God brings in, he's now able, when we acknowledge our sin, to come in and comfort us and to restore what's been lost through sin and repair us and give us life. And then he even says two times over, you remember that? Two times over, he's going to restore life in us when we come to that place where we acknowledge that we've missed the mark. And when we finally come to the end of control and surrender, Jesus is saying that we're on our way. But see, here's the thing. When we get to that third beatitude, essentially we come to the place of surrender, and now we usher in, now God ushers in heart change. Right? We come to a place where we've surrendered to God and now we've received him, and we come to the place where he's able to come in and begin changing our hearts and doing a work that only can be done supernaturally. And then he goes into the rest of the Beatitudes, and I wanna, we're going to get into the next one here. It says this. Well, let me back up. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has been made new. Right? That's where we're at. If anyone is in Christ, when we come to the place where we say, God, I surrender to you, 
we are now putting ourselves in Christ, right? If anyone is in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything is is made new. And this made new is a continually being made new, right? When you look at, when, when we break this down, this is what this is saying. It's a continual reoccurrence of being made new. It's the same way it talks about the Holy Spirit, that he continually, perpetually fills us. It's not just a one-time filling. It's a perpetual thing that's going on, okay? So, so here we are. The next beatitude says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When I was in junior high, uh, We'd go visit my grandparents uh, in Oklahoma a lot. I have a set of grandparents that lives in Coeur d'Alene in a, a set that lived, um, you know, they're, they're going to be with the Lord now, but they lived in Oklahoma in a little town called Sperry. I mean, the population of this town would change if someone went to the grocery store. It was, it was tiny. I mean, if they did a census while somebody was getting gas, half the population's gone. Everybody moved away. I mean, it was a tiny little town. My grandpa, he had probably four or five acres, and through the middle of his backyard went a railroad track. And the majority of the adventure I had as a kid took place on these railroad tracks. I, I had a BB gun, and my cousins and my, my brother, we would go down that railroad track. We, we would go to Oklahoma for a couple weeks, sometimes a month at a time, and we would spend every day, as long as we could tolerate it, down these railroad tracks, catching lizards, hunting snakes bringing home turtles. I mean, we, there was awesome stuff down there. Well, one day we were, we were driving home from someplace out of town, and on these railroad tracks, if you walk about five miles, you get to the place where there's an intersection, a road that comes into town. And if we went to that road from my grandpa's house, I mean, we were at the edge of the earth. I mean, it was very seldom that we got that far. It was a long walk, especially for junior hires with legs this long. And we, we uh, were driving back to town, and we were crossing over the railroad tracks at this point, and I had this harebrained idea of, of uh, hey, Mom, let us off here. We're going to walk home. So she's like, hey, great. So me and my brother and my cousin hopped out of the car, and we started walking down these railroad tracks. It was 118 degrees that day, and the humidity in Oklahoma, I mean, it's like stepping into a sauna when you get out of the air-conditioned car. And I didn't dawn on me, but when you're on hot rocks with the sun beating down on you, it must have been 130 degrees or more on those railroad tracks. And walking back, I didn't, we didn't get more than a third of the way, and we thought we were going to die. I mean, we were thirsting like I'd never had in my whole life. By the time we got home, I got water. Man, I, was, I couldn't drink enough water fast enough to feel like I was going to survive. I thought I was going to die of dehydration. I mean, it was the hottest day, hottest thing I'd ever experienced. Jesus says here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for something. They're hungering and they're thirsting for righteousness. What is righteousness? We can define it, but essentially righteousness is the, the condition acceptable to God. Okay? That's righteous. It's the condition that is acceptable to God. If we're not, righteousness is what God expects, Right? But here's the thing that we see in this verse. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It doesn't say that they are righteous because they're hungering and thirsting for it. They can't attain it on their own is what this passage is saying. We're, we're at a place where there's something that we can't get on our own, but it says that somehow we would be filled. 
There's this, there's a promise within this. But here's the thing. There comes a place when we've surrendered our lives to God where we recognize the sin, the destruction that sin has caused and is causing around us in our world. We recognize how sin grieves God's heart because it's separated mankind from his relationship with us, right? And we come to a place by a work of the Holy Spirit in us through salvation where we begin to hate sin. We begin to not want anything to do with it. But you know what? It's our nature because we still have the sin nature that compels us to it. We, 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 can't, we can't get away from it, it seems like. And we want to, and there's this struggle in us. Anybody ever had that before, right? I mean, Paul writes about it. Here's like the most, the most like on fire for God person in Scripture, and he talks about in the New Testament about his, his, his struggle with, his, with sin. We battle with this thing, but there comes a place where we hunger and we thirst for more of God. We hunger and we thirst for Him and we're craving for more of Him. And he says that at that point that there would be a filling involved. Let's take a look at Romans 4, 5. We're going to talk about this, this, this righteousness. I'm going to start at verse 5. I'm not going to read everything that's up here, but I'm going to read the part that's highlighted. It says, but to him who does not work, Work as in try to achieve right standing and righteousness with God by being a good person. To, but to him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for as righteousness. See, it's not our works that save us. It's not our works that draw us close to God. In fact, um, there is a Christian cult that says this. I'll do if you do everything within your ability to be a good person at the end of that God makes up your lack. Did you know that? And the majority of Christians today even believe this. We believe that sometimes that if I just keep being good enough, well maybe I'll kind of make up a little bit for what Jesus has to make up for cuz I don't want him to have to go the the full distance, right? But what it says right before what I just read, it says this in uh Oh, see, the end of verse 3, it says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. When we think that we can somehow reach God by a little bit of good works, or even by the best we can do, and we think we're, we're erasing debt, the Bible tells us that we're accruing debt. We're doing the opposite of what we think we're accomplishing. Isn't that crazy? Because we cannot attain righteousness no matter how hard we try. It's something that has to be given by God. But by a work of the Holy Spirit, we begin to crave after and hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right? We want more of God. Just like the song we sang earlier, right? I want more, I want more, right? We want more of God. We, we hunger and we thirst for this. And I believe right here is a prerequisite to the Spirit-filled life. I believe that there comes a point where when we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, that the Bible tells us that God comes and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. He empowers us for the Christian life. He empowers us for the Christian walk, the pursuit of him. And I believe absolutely that this is a prerequisite to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But, and I want to talk about that just, just a little bit. But, but I want to start with this. It says in Acts 2.17, In the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see, see visions. And your, your old men will dream dreams. There comes a point that, it, it, let me back up one more time. 
in the last days. What's that talking about? That is any time after the first Pentecost, right? From then till who knows when is the last days. The Bible says God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Does that mean the whole world? No, it doesn't. It means all of one kind. It means all of those who follow Christ, God would pour out his spirit. There'll come a day when God's going to pour out his spirit on those who, who are followers of Christ, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And it's going to bring about a revival like you've never seen before in, in the entire world has never seen before. It's, it's going to be amazing. But there's this thing, the Bible wants to, God wants to empower us with his Holy Spirit. And a couple of things about about the Holy Spirit I want to talk to you about real fast. It says, I'm getting ahead of myself, my apologies. It doesn't say, when I say it, this is what I want to tell you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something to have. God does not give us his Holy Spirit as a badge on our brownie vest, right? It is not a religious thing to acquire, but it's something to use. What I mean by that is, is this. A word used to describe the Holy Spirit is ezer kenigdo in, in, the, in the Hebrew, right? And that word, the only, that word's used two times in the description. It's used as, as a description of the Holy Spirit, and it's used to describe a wife. What do those two things have in common? The Bible says that in, the, in Genesis, essentially that a, a wife is an ezer kenigdo, that she is a helper beside me. We've somehow translated that to be a help mate. The literal translation is a help meet. The picture that that paints is somebody who comes alongside of us. The other day, I was walking a track with my wife. For those of you who don't know, my legs are really screwed up. If somebody yelled fire and I took off running, I would fall on the floor about right here and have to low crawl out the door. My legs are bad. I look pretty normal right now, but you give it about 20 minutes. Pull out your video cameras. You can make funniest home video, I'm telling you. We were walking around a track, which was just, I don't know why I was walking a track, but my legs were getting worn out by about most of the way around this track. My wife was with me, and I put my arm around her, and she, she bore my weight so that we could walk together to get back to the car and go get some Mexican food, <laughs> right? But she was bearing my weight because I couldn't do it anymore. And this is the word that is used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He comes alongside of us. We use him to carry our weight. He reminds us of scripture. He encourages us. He comforts us when we need comforting. He urges us to continue to pursue righteousness, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something to have but to use. It's not the height of the spiritual experience, but one that is the, one of the essential foundations for your furtherance in your relationship with God. It's not something to attain. It's something that when we give our lives to God through Jesus and in Jesus, he's given us this promise to come alongside of us and to bear our weight. Isn't that a great promise? So I want to give you four signs of the Spirit-filled life today. Four signs of the Spirit-filled life, right? What about barking like a dog in church? Is that one of them? I haven't seen it in Scripture. Okay? What about, let's get real, man. What about praying in tongues? 
right? What about praying in tongues, right? That's for some, that's scary, right? That's up for discussion. Let's have a talk about it, right? But I, what I want to do today is give you four indisputable, unarguable evidences that the scriptures give us for somebody who is who's walking in the spirit-filled life, okay? Here they are. Number one is the fruit of the spirit. In Galatians, Paul lists evidences of those who are walking in the spirit. And it says this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right, if anybody wants to quack like a duck in church, remember that last one. All right. Okay, so these are indisputable evidences of the Holy Spirit at work in a person. Right? When we are walking with the Lord, when we're hungering and we're thirsting for righteousness, and we allow God's Holy Spirit to fill us. Right? See, there, there are two, two aspects to the filling of the Holy Spirit. See, when we receive Jesus, when we say yes to him, we surrender our, to him, we lay down our lives, we confess our sins, the Bible says that, that the Spirit of God comes and dwells within us. Right? And he doesn't leave. He's there. Right? But there's a second occurrence of, of where the Holy Spirit that's in you begins to well like, like a water well begins to spring up and produce life, right? We call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And essentially, the picture that that paints is an immersion of the baptism of something coming down over you. But essentially, it's a baptism from within. It's a spring flowing up and overflowing, right? If you take, if you take a, a sink, and well, a sink's kind of a bad example, but if, if I have a, a sink and I leave the water on, it's going to fill the sink and it's going to overflow, Right? Essentially, the picture that's painted of, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is from within us. The Spirit of God that's in there is welling out and overflowing, right? But this is, these are some evidences of the Spirit-filled life. The next one is a desire to share the good news. Not just any good news. I like to tell people about good news, but this, this is specific good news. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. When I gave my life to Jesus, uh, probably months later, a friend of mine and I, we were uh, just leaving a school event late in the evening, and we had just spent some time, um, how much time we got? I'm not going to get into it. I'll tell you another time. But we, we were super pumped about having just got to share some, some of the, the good news of Jesus with some of, some of our school, and it was a powerful time. And we were walking out to his car. It was, it was dark, and I remember the, the pavement was wet. It wasn't raining, and we were just talking about, we were just super excited about what God had just done. And, man, I just began to, to laugh, and he started laughing, and we're like, why are we laughing? What are, you, what are you laughing about? I don't know, man. What are you laughing about? And we were just overcome with joy. We weren't overcome with laughing. We were overcome with joy, and the expression of that just happened to be laughing. Right? We were laughing, and, and he says, what's going on? And I said, man, I think it's the Holy Spirit that we just read about the other day. I, I think the, it's the Holy Spirit. And he's like, yeah, man, me too. So we got in the car. We are just talking about God and how awesome he was. We went to the gas station because we weren't going to make it home if we didn't. And I just could not help but go inside and tell the clerk about Jesus. Couldn't help it, man. I was sitting in the car just, just fiending to tell somebody about God. And I went in the store. My buddy came in with me, and we, we, we got to, to pray with the guy that was working at the thing. We didn't pray for his salvation, but he had some stuff that just needed prayer. And so we told him about Jesus. We prayed for him, and then off we went. There's not a single person I meet these days that I don't think to myself, should I tell them about Jesus? And I got to tell them about the Lord. And I wait for an opportunity. And, and, you know, a lot of the times there's no opportunity. 
but there's, there's a desire that's burning in me to share the good news. And sometimes the enemy will use that to beat us up, right? We'll go home and think, man, I, I didn't tell that person about Jesus and I should have done it, right? Don't beat yourself up. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's simply the Holy Spirit at work, full force in you, right? Compelling us to share, to share, right? It's a sign of the, uh, of the Spirit-filled life. The next one is a new boldness. I don't care if you're an introvert or an extrovert or somewhere in between, right? You're going to be compelled to go beyond yourself with the love of God. And it won't be awkward. It won't be uncomfortable. It'll just be natural because there'll be a natural thing developing in your soul, just burning there, it's, and, and it, it's good. The last one is a new love for the lost and hurting and broken. Evidences of the Spirit-filled life. The last one, a new love for those lost and hurting and broken. You will see people in a different way than you've ever seen them before. You will begin to recognize people at the mall, recognize people at your school, recognize people at work, on the street, and you will see them differently than you saw them before because of the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in you, right? I want to I pause for just a minute. If you're here today and, and you've never received the filling of the Holy Spirit today, I'm going to do something just real quickly. It's not getting weird. We're, we're, I just want to pray for you. Can I just get everybody just to close our eyes up? Let's just close our eyes before the Lord. This morning, if you're here and you say, you know what? I want to be able to lean on the Holy Spirit I've been walking with God, but you know what? I feel like I'm carrying all this load on my own, and I'm hungering and I'm thirsting for righteousness, and I want more. I want more of Jesus. If that's you, would you just slide your hand up? I just want to pray for you just this morning, real quickly. All right, I see a couple of hands. I want to pray for you. Jesus, I just want to pray over those who have their hands lifted before you this morning. Father, if they've never been overwhelmed by the, by the filling of the Holy Spirit, I pray that today... Father, that you do a miraculous work in them, Lord Jesus, that, that your spirit would now just begin to well out in them. And Father, that you would just do, do something to come alongside them, Jesus, and carry the weight that they carry. And Father, that the things that are, that are evidenced in your word as the spirit-filled life, Father, that they would fill them. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, don't be surprised if you raised your hand and you get through your week and you start seeing people differently. Don't be surprised if all of a sudden in you is a desire to share Jesus was somebody, a desire you didn't have before, right? It's the Holy Spirit. All right, moving on. The next thing Jesus talks about, says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What is mercy? It's not getting what we deserve, right? Grace is getting something we don't deserve, right? Mercy is not getting something we do deserve. It's pardoning. It's forgiving the unforgivable. Right? It's forgiving the unforgivable. Peter went to Jesus in the scriptures. We read that Peter goes to Jesus and he says, he, he's kind of figuring this whole thing out of following Jesus. And he says to him, Jesus, I want to talk to you about forgiveness. If somebody wrongs me, I, I think I'm putting this together, Lord. I should forgive them seven times, huh? And Jesus says, No. Not really. You should forgive them 70 times 7. And Peter was left there kind of doing one of these. What was Jesus saying to Peter? What was this interaction all about? Essentially, Peter was saying to Jesus, if someone wrongs me, no matter how many times they do, 
I should forgive them. I should, within myself, be able to forgive them indefinitely. Right, Jesus? And Jesus essentially said to him, Peter, you're close. But no, because here's the thing. There's going to come a time in every one of our lives, including Peter, when we're going to find somebody who, within our own ability, is unforgivable. Through our own eyes, somebody will have done something that will cross that line into the place of, I just don't know, God. And Jesus is telling Peter, there's going to come a time when you're going to need a supernatural ability to forgive beyond your own. And every single one of us need that, don't we? Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. This is, this is a scary verse to me. It says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your, will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. That is a scary verse to me. See, if we don't forgive, we haven't seen our own depravity if we are still seeing the depravity and failures of others and able to use that against them. Did you know that? In order to follow Jesus, the first thing we have to do is recognize our own failure, our own depravity, and how far from the cross we really are. In order for us to go to God and say, God, would you forgive me of my sin? I have completely missed it. 100% have no ability to attain righteousness. When we're still seeing the depravity and failures of others, we somehow think we've got a little bit of good to give still. The Holy Spirit wants to bring us to a place where we have an empathy towards sinners, not towards sin. Right? We are called to not tolerate sin. But we have an empathy and a grace towards sinners. Knowing something. Here's what, we, here's what we need to know. Every single one of us have the capacity within ourselves to commit the same sin. To fall in the same area, don't we? We all have the same failures and weaknesses that are innate to our own being because of sin. And God wants to bring us to this place where, where we, we recognize that, that every single one of us has failed and missed the mark, even ourselves. See, we like to compare ourselves to others. We like, we like to, in fact, I was driving down to church this morning and somebody's driving in the fast lane. And here I am doing just a little bit over the speed limit. <laughs> and somebody was in the fast lane and Lord knows they're supposed to move over, right? They're supposed to get out of my way. I'm passing. Yeah, passing. And they didn't move, so I went around them. And, of course, I looked at them like, what are you doing in that? That's my lane. <laughs> right? But, but you, know, you know what I do most of the time? I'll get in the fast lane, and I space off, and I don't check my mirrors. And next thing you know, somebody's up behind me getting on the horn or glaring at me. Right? I get mad at people for doing the same thing that I do, whether it's intentional or on accident. Right? I'm a hypocrite to my core. And I own it, man. And I take it to Jesus all the time. God, you got to forgive me because I'm so messed up, right? We, we, we look at Jim Bob next door and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. At least I never did that thing, right? We, we like to point fingers at a lot of people and judge a lot of people. But the reality of it is God doesn't judge us based on Steve. God doesn't judge us based on the guy on the freeway. God, the standard that God judges mankind by is by his son, Jesus who is perfect in every way. 
being God himself, never failed once. He is the standard by which we are judged. So we have the choice of taking things on our own and saying, that's fine, judge me based on my goodness, compare me to that, maybe I'll match up. Or by saying, God, I have no ability what so stinking ever. Please forgive my sin. I want, I want your righteousness that you give. I want your filling that you give. I'm going to move on to our next one. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What's this whole thing about being pure? Right? Isn't my heart pure already because Jesus died on the cross? He forgave my sins. So now my heart should be pure, right? Pure. They shall see God. The scriptures say in the New Testament that God has counted you as righteous. I'm going to challenge your theology just a minute. God has counted you as righteous. There is a difference between being counted as righteous and being righteous. I'm going to tell you what it is. The difference between being counted as righteous and being righteous is this. It's as though a race is being won. God now sees you as counted you as righteous. He sees you as having won the race. His opinion of you is you have won the race. His view of you is as a winner. While at the same time walking with you along the course to get to that place. We serve a timeless God. But I know when I look in the mirror that I still have struggles because when I gave my life to Jesus, he counted me as righteous and then he began setting in place the process of renewing me. It's called sanctification. It's where he changes us. He takes the DNA of our sin nature and begins to reconstruct it. I have not read anywhere in Scripture where the Bible says God is going to take away your old nature. The Bible says that someday God's going to give you a new body. But I'm going to tell you this. He's not giving you a new nature. He's rebuilding the one you have. Because someday He wants you to be able to stand on the throat of of your failures with success. Did you know that? He wants you to succeed. But it's not, it's not easy. We have to allow him to shape us and to change us. The Bible says in Philippians 1, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. All right? Are you sure, God? <laughs> have you seen what I'm looking at in the mirror? Right? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. As Christians, we like to look at the cross, man. We like to examine the cross, and, and we like to be in the Word of God, and we like to know it and tear it apart and, and learn about all sorts of theological stuff and, and, and learn neat definitions of he- Hebrew words and Greek words. Essentially, we're, we like to go up to the cross and look at it and, and see, the, see the, the, the gloss on the wood and tell our friends about it and point out all the cool stuff, right? But Jesus is standing on the other side of that thing, and he's calling us to come up to it a little bit closer. And he wants to reach through one of those nail holes and get a hold of us and pull us through to the side where he's on. He wants to pull us through, and it's that process of, of being shaped and being molded and being, being twisted by the things that life throws at us as we walk with God through the process of being changed. Those are the things that shape us to be ready for anything. James chapter 1 tells us God is 
allowing, using the, the difficult things that life throws at us in order to shape us to be more like his son, in order to shape us to be ready for anything. He's preparing us. And so listen, I don't know what it is that you struggle with, what you're going through right now in your life. I, you know, If we had a conversation, I'd love to hear about it and I'd love to pray with you. But here's the thing. We are all struggling through different things. We have to recognize that if we're going to pursue Jesus on his terms in full surrender to him, we have to be willing to allow him to use the stuff that life throws at us to shape us, to become who he has called you to be. We have to endure the process. Does it mean God gave you the physical condition you have? Does it mean God gave you cancer? No. Does it mean that God caused you to lose your job? No. Does it mean God cost you that relationship? No, it doesn't. Life throws things at us that are just downright rotten sometimes. But you know what? God does this. All right. Because here's an opportunity. Right? Here's an opportunity. It, sa- it says in Romans that, that God will work out all things for good for those who love him and are called according to her, his purposes, right? Those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Right? God's plan is to conform you to be like Jesus. And it's through the process. The thing we have to ask ourselves is, right, it, it says be anxious for, for nothing but, wait a second, I just got off on a whole different scripture. Um, Now, God works out all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Are we pursuing our own purposes or pursuing his? Right? This this is what causes the criteria to line up for everything to work out for good. Right? Are we lining ourselves up with his purposes? Are we allowing him and submitting to the process of faith? Are we submitting to the process of allowing him to shape us through the rough circumstances? I tell people this. This, this is what this process is like. Anybody ever gone inner tubing behind a boat before? When I was a kid, w- the inner tubing we got to do was behind my uncle's bass fishing boat. He's a tournament fisherman, and he had like a 300-horsepower motor on the back of this bass boat. When this boat got cruising, the only thing in the water was the prop, and the boat would skip off the water like a rock. And we would take a, 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 a ski rope and tie it to a truck inner tube. Right, with the, the little filth spout that's like that long, right? You had to make sure that tube was flipped upside down or else that thing would impel you in the face. And we would wrap that rope around it and we would cling to that thing for dear life, going 90 miles an hour down through the lake. And, and at the time, at the get-go of it, man, I was ready. I'm, I'm ready for this. It's going to be awesome. But once he hit the gas, I was clinging for dear life, thinking, oh, Lord, I'm going to die. There's no way this is going to be good. But you know what? By the time it came to an end, I was saying, man, that was fun. Let's do it again. Right? In the pursuit of Jesus, the rough things that we go through, it's going to be like holding on to an inner tube. Right? There's no skill to it. You just hold on for dear life. And you pray. And you trust that God has a, process, a, a plan for this. And he's going to work it out for your good. Because he loves you. And he's called you according to his purposes. And by the time it's all done, you are going to be ready for anything so that we can get to the place like Paul where we say, whether I have plenty, whether I have little, whether I'm living in a cardboard box or mansion, whether I'm I'm, I'm eating at at fancy restaurants or, or making mac and cheese every night, no matter what I am going through, I will be content because I know that God is with me in this and he's using this for my best.
So this week, we've talked about the character that happens as we surrender ourselves to God. Last week, we talked about surrender. In a few weeks, we're going to go on and we're going to talk about the impassioned heart because we are still continuing along in this, this course that Jesus has set up for us, the Christian life, right? And the last two Beatitudes I want to talk with you about, like I said, Terry's going to be back next week. And uh, he's got some, some, some powerful things he wants to share with you. But towards the end of the month, beginning of next, next month, I want to I wrap this, this series up and talk to you about the impassioned life because this whole process that he laid out for us is what Jesus said blessing comes from. If you want to live a life that is truly blessed beyond your circumstances, one that is long-going, long-lasting, that by the time you get to the end are able to look back and say, that was a life worth living There was adventures that I went on that I had never even dreamed that my life would be like. This is the path to get there. And it's hard. And sometimes we have to forgive the unforgivable. One of the relationships in my life that that, um, I, I hold most dear to me is somebody who I looked in the eye one time and I said, you've crossed that line. They did something that was, to me, so unforgivable. I, I just said, I didn't think I was going to make it to heaven because of it. It was, it was a big deal. But I'm able to sit down with this person now and, and look them in the eye. They can speak into my life. I have the freedom to speak into their life. And the change that God has brought to their life because of their surrender to him and the, and the repentance that's taken place over the subject, they are an entirely new person and free from that sin, free from that issue. And I'm free from it because I got to a place where supernaturally I had to say, instead of praying, God, help me to forgive them, I started praying, God, I forgive them. Every single time I thought of them, I would tell God, God, I forgive them for this thing until it took root. And you may need to do that. But it's a supernatural process that God's going to use to bring you to a place of forgiveness. It's a supernatural process that takes place when God fills you with his Holy Spirit and you can lean on him. And he carries you through the rest of your stuff. Right? And it's, it's I, I didn't mention this a while ago, but this whole, this last beatitude here, it says, blessed are the pure in heart. This, this whole pure in heart thing, it, it's, 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 there's a Greek word here, it's, it's uh, katharos, and it simply means this, it's an agricultural word that means, it's used specifically for the pruning of a tree or a vine to produce more fruitfulness. Did you know that? That's what this word pruning means, or, or word pure means. Right? It's about the process. All right, so I want to pray for you. Father, we just come before you this morning, and Lord, we are grateful that even though we're in the process of life, Lord, your word says that you will never leave us or forsake us. Father, thank you that you send your Holy Spirit so that we can lean on you, and you'll bear our weight, the struggles that we can't, Lord, the struggles that we can carry and the struggles we can't carry. Father, your word says you want all of them. So, Lord, help us to lean on you and give those things to you. Help us to forgive, Lord, the unforgivable. Change our hearts, Father, to see the way that you see. And, Father, help us to not give up through the process of being shaped by you to be more like Jesus. In your name, Father.